Hey everyone, just a reminder that The Wedding Scammer is a seven-part story that isn't complete until you get to the end. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car, Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. A quick note about this episode. Some of the language you'll hear includes offensive terms used to describe people of color. Previously on The Wedding Scammer. It's this onion factor, or like a Russian doll factor. You'd peel off a layer and there's another one right there. The fuck? His name isn't Michael Esposito? That's not even his real goddamn name? How many people have you written a bunch of checks to that you didn't actually owe money to? You think there's nothing else that I could possibly learn? I know everything, and then here comes another layer. Someone must have spoiled you, really spoiled you so much. So you must have money. My girlfriend Nicole likes to joke about the weird network of people I've built through this podcast. I've got new friends in the Bay Area, some random people in Wisconsin and Vegas to say hi to when we travel. My two Joshes, Janae's husband and documentary Josh. A group of people who in normal situations I would have never met, but because of Michael, Lawrence, Mark, whatever his name is, we've become pretty friendly. And right now, thanks to this network, I find myself on a car ride in rural Pennsylvania talking about our scammer. At the time, I knew him as Michael Esposito. Yes. And he was sitting there, basically talking about this news magazine and what our role would be. That's Alice Kranz. Alice was a freelancer at Newsarati, the fake media company I worked for back in 2016. She's just another of the many people that Michael Esposito never paid. We didn't know each other back then. Alice worked remotely, 3,000 miles away, here in Pennsylvania. We didn't meet until I posted in a Facebook group that I was working on this podcast. I just thought it was very cool. I was kind of curious of whatever became of it or became of him, because I remember in a lot of those emails, that massive email chain that was going on, people were talking about how he's a scammer, he's done this before. When Alice and I connected a few months ago, I told her I didn't need to interview any more people who worked at Newsarati. I had spoken to so many already, and unless she had some surprising new information, I didn't want to waste her time. 
But then I asked Alice where she lived, and she said about 45 minutes outside of Pittsburgh. That's when I realized I had an assignment for her. I needed someone to take a ride with me deep into western Pennsylvania, where our scammer grew up. I needed a tour guide, and Alice obliged. I never thought in a million years that I would be driving with you to confront the parents of the main character of your podcast. <sighs> okay, we're, we're less than a mile. Less than a mile away from the house our scammer grew up in, where we hope to speak with the people who raised him. But before I tell you about that, I need to tell you his real name. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Justin Sales. This is The Wedding Scammer. Chapter 4, Coal Country. Dear listener, you've officially made it to the halfway point of the podcast, to the origin story. It's not the climax of the series, because I still have to put on the wire I promised back in episode one. But this episode has a different kind of payoff. The answer to a central mystery. Who the hell is this guy? Getting that answer requires getting in his head. One way to do that is to listen to him talk. Right now, the best I can do for you on that front is to play you a recording. This one was taken in 2018 by one of his employees. We won't name them because it was made without our scammer's knowledge. But this recording was emailed to me earlier this year, about five years after the conversation took place. In it, our scammer is talking about his upbringing, or at least the way he's presented it to so many people. So we used to go shopping, right? So when I, when I was moved to New York full-time as a young adult, we'd go shopping, and we could always put things in the house account. Right there, he's talking about living in New York when he was young and his rich parents having a house account at a high-end store. Small details that feed into the larger idea of his unimaginable wealth. I would call, and they would send a car to come and get me and my friends. Now, we'd get out. You've been to New York, obviously, so you know how busy the sidewalks are. The car would pull up right in front of the doors of Gucci. The security guards would come out, hold... Tra- sidewalk. Hold the sidewalk traffic. Pedestrians. So you and the three dogs can walk in right. to go shopping. Right. And you feel like a million dollars. He would take a private car to the Gucci store. Then the security guards would roll out the red carpet and hold the sidewalks for him so pedestrians didn't get in the way. You walk in and it's like, I like that. I go to Gucci. I like that walk. They'd hand it to me. There you go. Because they knew that I didn't need the hazari of them putting it in boxes. I didn't need the bag like I was a fucking Asian walking down the street like, ah, look, I just shopped at Gucci. It's like, I need a wallet. Do you know what I got off on? I like that wallet. Oh, great. Here you go, Mr. Esposito. And I put it in my pocket and walk out the door. And the thrill was, how did that just happen? This guy just walked up, picked that wallet up. They handed it and walked out of the door. Did nothing happen? You know? So you, you get like that, that, like, the power, yes, that power sure. of it, right? Or you don't want to be down here with them. Let's go up to the suite. We have some Mianetto that you like, and we're good. we already have your sizes pulled. Let's have a great time. This is the Michael Esposito I met at Nuzerati, with the fantastical stories of unimaginable wealth and the brash cockiness, the idea that he's better than the people beneath him. In that light, 
the casual racism didn't surprise me. But what from this anecdote is actually real? What from this very specific story of a young Mr. Esposito getting the celebrity treatment at a Gucci store can we confirm? Well, the first thing I can tell you is that his name is not Mr. Esposito. It's not Michael. It's also not Mark White. And it's certainly not Lawrence Tonner, as we already know. It's a different name. I learned this name from Josh Santomieri and Janae McCullough, the couple from last episode that went into the catering business with him. The people who say they're out hundreds of thousands of dollars because they had the misfortune of meeting him. Josh and Janae tell me they got a call from the Oakland police in 2021 to come in and ID a mugshot from a lineup. And in that lineup, a picture of our main character. They ID'd him. That's our guy. And then they asked what his real name was. But they say the police told them it was an open case, so they weren't at liberty to share. Even though he was using an alias, even though Janae and Josh had what they believed, and I agree, was hard proof that he scammed them. They're telling us that there's nothing. He said, you know, I'm going to put together the evidence that I have and I turn it over to the DA, but the DA is not going to do anything. And that's exactly what happened. The DA decided not to prosecute. And when I reached out and asked why, they simply responded, quote, the Alameda County District Attorney's Office does not charge people if the case cannot be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, end quote. Remember from last episode, fraud and bad checks can be very hard to bring to trial. I was like, that's it. You know, this is done. You can hear in Janae's voice how deflating it was. Not only that charges were unlikely, but that they couldn't even find out who this guy really was. But Josh thought there might be another way to get his name. He knew the case had been turned over to the DA, so he figured it couldn't hurt to pick up the phone and dial the front desk. So called, uh, got a hold of one of the secretaries at the district attorney's office, gave her the case number, got some basic information uh, from her. Finally, I asked if she could tell me the names of the named parties in the case. And to Josh's surprise, she did just that. And she returned with the names Carl Bucho and Lawrence Tonner. Two names, and we already know who Lawrence Tonner is. Carl Bucho was the new name, and that was the person that we identified in a uh, photo lineup with Oakland Police Department. In case you missed it, that other name, the primary person of interest, our guy, Carl Bucho. B-U-T-C-H-O. Carl Bucho the answer to a question that had bothered Josh and Janae for two years at that point, that had bothered me for five. Over the past few years, I've confirmed this name in a few different ways. First, I called the DA's office, just like Josh did, and they told me that Carl Bucho was the primary name on the file. And then I confirmed it again earlier this year with the real Lawrence Tonner, the business associate from the Bay Area who was arrested at the restaurant. Lawrence confirmed that the man I knew was Michael Esposito, who's gone by a handful of other aliases, Lawrence knew him as Carl Bucho. But what do we know about Carl? What can knowing the name of a ghost really tell you? Well, a few things. The first is, he was born in 1982 and is currently 41 years old. Second, he is actually from Pennsylvania, like he told me back when I met him. But Googling Carl Bucho also turns up a few news articles from New York Magazine and the New York Post about one incident from 15 years ago. And these articles do confirm a few more parts of the backstory he's been selling. He has some catering experience, and he has spent some time in the city. 
But that life in New York isn't exactly what he's made it out to be. In fact, the New York Post headline calls him a, quote, credit card drifter. Here's the lead to that piece as read by my story editor, Amanda Dobbins. A Tribeca caterer went on a $361,000 spending spree with his boyfriend's credit card, while the pair shared a love nest at the Tony Ritz-Carlton, splurging on such goodies as spa treatments, personal shoppers, and dog walkers. Okay, $361,000 in credit card transactions for spa treatments and dog walkers. All charges racked up by Carl, according to the Post. Expenses that the article says Carl promised to pay off with his vast family fortune. Except when the bill came due, it appears he didn't have the money to cover. I pulled the court documents. Carl was charged with two counts of grand larceny. According to the documents, Carl and his then-boyfriend checked into the Ritz-Carlton overlooking Central Park using the boyfriend's corporate credit card. Carl then promised to swap that credit card with his mother's, and he assured his boyfriend that nothing else would be charged to him. But according to prosecutors, that didn't happen. And over the next six weeks, they managed to accumulate hundreds of thousands of dollars in charges. Some real Anna Delvey shit right there. Carl eventually pleaded guilty in that case. He was sentenced to up to five years in prison. But some of the details that caught my eyes weren't in the court filings. The Post interviewed someone who said Carl told them he was living in an $8 million apartment. New York Magazine, meanwhile, ran a quote from a local business guide. It was from a review of the famous Paris Commune restaurant, and it's talking about their latest hire, Carl. Here's my producer Jade reading it. Their new executive chef is Carl Bucho, the son of the mega developer and coal tycoon whose offspring shares the same name. This guy also owns a restaurant and hotel consultancy and did a lot of work for one of my business partners. He is very specific and tough and has a strong reputation for turning businesses around. With the power of Mr. Bucho's palate commissioned, Paris Commune is most likely assured wild success. It's the best decision they have made in a while. So much of the guy we know is right there. The restaurant ownership. The tough but skilled Gordon Ramsay type. The son of a coal tycoon, a detail he told us at Newsarati. I recognize this story. I've heard it dozens of times by now, both firsthand and from so many other people. But the $360,000 credit card incident is just one piece of Carl Bucho's rap sheet. There's also a New York criminal court conviction from 2006 for theft of services. Another third-degree grand larceny conviction from 2012 in Kingston, New York. An indictment for writing bad checks in West Virginia from when he was 24, though I can't find what the resolution was in that case. But there's one more case I want to focus on for a second. Not because of the dollar amount, but because of what's in the case file. It's from 2005. And it's credit card fraud again, but not really for that much money. But there are a few things in the court documents worth calling out. First, a new alias for Carl. Danny Gismondi. That's our fourth fake name if you're keeping score at home. Also, the file for this case includes handwritten notes, apparently from an investigator. Seven pages of names, dates, and places seemingly tracking Carl's life in the early 2000s. But I've poured through these many times now, and some of them are hard to follow. But there are a few relevant details I was able to pull. In October 2005, 
Carl arrived in New York from Pennsylvania to meet a man he met on a dating website. Carl stole his credit cards and used them around town. But this wasn't his first victim, it seems. There were references to people in South Carolina and back in Pennsylvania that he allegedly deceived and took money from. Some of the details were less criminal and more comical. He lied to some people about having a friendship with Mariah Carey. But maybe the most important detail for our purposes? Carl seems to have indicated to the investigator that he told people his parents were rich when they weren't, and that they had a private plane, which they didn't. These notes also include a signed statement from Carl admitting the broad strokes of this. I'm going to ask my producer Bobby to read from it now. Heads up, this is slightly edited to remove the name of the victim in this incident. My intentions when initially arriving on October 7th, 2005, was never to take advantage of him. Although in the end, that is what I did. I used lies to gain trust and to make myself seem more important than I am. I used lies to gain trust and to make myself seem more important than I am. I could have seen that coming, but it's still shocking to read in his own words. And this is most of the information that's available on Carl Buccio. There's little else out there. I can find that he does share a name with his dad, Carl Sr., and that his dad and his mom, Marilyn, are both alive and living in western Pennsylvania. But that's kind of it in terms of real info on Carl Jr. Nothing in California. No current address, no education history, no recent arrests. Nothing that confirms dad is a cold tycoon or that there's a trust fund. Nothing about owning restaurants. The rest of what's out there about Carl exists in disjointed fragments, disconnected phone numbers, an LLC in South Carolina registered in 2002, a Reddit thread from eight years ago that mentions his name and tells a story about a scammy-sounding charity. It appears that the last real thing that happened to Carl Buccio Jr. was being released on parole in New York in 2015, just a few months before I met him in Los Angeles. But since then, Carl Buccio basically hasn't existed. It's like he fell off the planet. It's like he became someone else. But all of these biographical details and stray bits of info tell only part of the story. They don't tell us who Carl really is or how he ended up the way he did. And it seems impossible to get this information while sitting here in Los Angeles. So I think it's time to pay a visit to Pennsylvania, to coal country, to see what we can find out. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. 
Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. I don't live in such a remote area. I, I don't, I'm not even saying this is remote, but it's definitely rural. I mean, look at what we're driving through right now. What are we driving through? Like, I mean, if you just look around, we're on our way to Uniontown. We're, I don't know, we're, I think this is like East Huntington. Okay. But it's pretty, like there's tractor supply stores, mega churches. You can, you can see farmland. We're definitely getting away from the city. You can buy some sweet corn right there. Do you want to stop and buy corn? I'm in the car with Alice Kranz, the new Zerati freelancer you met at the top of this episode. My sidekick for one of the more bizarre trips I've ever taken. We're currently driving away from Pittsburgh and toward Masontown. Total population 3,200. The quote-unquote big town next door is Uniontown, which itself isn't very big. It's closer to West Virginia than to where the Steelers play. And it's an area that's changed dramatically in the past half century as coal mining jobs and other industries have dried up. It used to be the spot. So it was obviously coal mining, steel industry. And I read that at one point, like late 19th century, right before the turn of the century, Uniontown had the most millionaires per capita of any city in the United States. There was so much wealth from coal mining and steel. Then all those jobs vanished and a lot of the wealth dried up too. I mean, you've been here for two days now. Yep. You've kind of seen it. The towns just fell apart. This is where Carl Buccio grew up in the 80s and 90s. It's not the upbringing he's described at every stop he's been. This isn't private jets and chauffeur cars in New York. This is small-town USA. The story he's told so many times, it couldn't be more different. That's the American dream, you know, pull yourself up from your bootstraps, make something out of yourself. Right. I mean, everybody's story who's been successful, you start off exactly like he started off, with nothing. And, I mean, nothing. I was looking up house values in his town. I was shot like, you can get a three-bedroom, two-bathroom with property, a garage, driveway, for less than 100000 A nice house. But then you have to live in Uniontown or Masontown. Which is, I mean, I guess if you like that small town vibe, Pittsburgh's not that far. Not that far, but also worlds away. Which, to a kid who grew up like Carl Buccio, could be understandably difficult. Carl is a gay man born in western Pennsylvania in 1982. I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but growing up gay in America before the turn of the century... Let's just say acceptance wasn't the expectation. Another factor to consider, that dynamic was often worse for gay people in rural areas, like Masontown. In fact, right before we started the hour-long drive to Carl's hometown, I had breakfast with Alice's best friend, Richard. He's a gay man who grew up about 45 minutes away. Richard had a long-term boyfriend in the area and spent a lot of time there around the same time Carl was growing up. 
And Richard says that it probably wasn't easy for a young gay kid to come of age in this area. He told me it was a step or two behind the times. And also, he added, quote, It was always like, oh, thank God I don't live here. But it's one thing to hear this. I needed to see it with my own eyes. And for that, I needed Alice's help. Let me tell you a little bit about Alice Kranz. She's been a high school English teacher for about two decades. But back in 2015, she was dealing with a death in the family and felt she needed a distraction. So when she found a Craigslist ad looking for freelancers for a new publication, she decided she wanted to live out every English teacher's dream and become a published writer. But just one problem. That publication turned out to be Newserati, which, as you'll recall, quickly turned out to be, well, bogus. And like everyone I've spoken to, Alice didn't get paid. She wasn't out a ton of money, but she was curious. So she signed up for the same Facebook groups I did, the ones dedicated to tracking this bizarre situation. And she passively followed the investigation over the years. She got the distraction she wanted, just not like she was expecting. And now, years later, she finds herself on yet another side quest. She's joining me on my latest mission. Today, we're going to drop in on Carl's parents and see if they'll talk to us. Is there anything about this, in, like, this investigation and this story that's particularly interests you besides your personal involvement? Number one, I got conned. Yeah. Because I like to think of myself as somebody who can't possibly be conned. You know, I feel like I'm so above that. Clearly, it can happen to somebody like me. So I think it's interesting that it's not like I'm just doing this random podcast with a... Like, I was affected by this guy. Another thing about Alice, she loves podcasts. She's listened to a lot of them, true crime and otherwise. And I could use some help from a connoisseur right now. Someone who can offer insight into what a listener might want to know from Carl's parents. I just think about, here you, you show up for your wedding day. The most important day of your life where everything, you want everything to be perfect. You've invested so much time and money and your caterer and photographer don't show up. And not only that, but you've lost tens of thousands of dollars. Your trust is broken forever. Like you can't, who who are you ever going to trust again after that? Like who hurt Carl? that he feels like he needs to hurt other people. Alice also provides something else valuable for this mission. She's, how do I put this, more presentable looking than I am. Alice is a 53-year-old school teacher with a bubbly personality. She's a young grandmother. Meanwhile, I'm covered in tattoos and usually dressed in all black. Alice told me I don't look like a typical journalist. And sure, I'll take that as a compliment but we are showing up unexpectedly at Carl's parents' house and trying to talk our way in to get them to open up about how their son became a con man, what I can only assume is a very sensitive subject. In rural Pennsylvania, let's just say I like Alice's chances at the front door better than mine. So we begin rehearsing various scenarios, all of them with Alice taking the lead. So, like, hi... I know you don't know me. My name is Alice, and this is my friend Justin. I think we have to be clear on- You're my friend. I'm your friend. So, but why are we there? What, what are we- I'm getting, I'm getting there. Okay, all right. Okay, so, like, so, so start at the beginning. 
Uh, hi, hi, can I help you? Oh, hey, hi, how are you? Um, I know you don't know me, but my name is Alice. This okay. is my friend Justin, All and right. we are here to talk to We're you. We're not buying or anything. Um, yeah. You're be you're being way too nice right now as Carl C. You think so? Oh my god. Okay, then let's you're try it again. So you're being like you're so not even scary to me. Okay. Let's try it again. <sighs> I guess the tattoos aren't as intimidating as I thought. But Alice and I do this for the final 20 minutes of the drive, over and over again. My name is Alice. This is my friend Justin. He's a journalist. We just want to talk to you about your son. And after a few times through, we feel pretty good. But the reality is, neither of us know what's going to happen. We arrive in Masontown around 1 p.m. It's Saturday, but Main Street is dead. We pull over and park. There aren't many businesses to speak of. A vape shop, an Italian restaurant, a small library. There's also a Methodist church, and across from the church, a gun and ammo store. So the downtown looks pretty predictable with a lot of empty storefronts and... Oh, look at the American flags lining Main Street. This just got really real. Alice and I go over the plan a few more times, and then she starts the car again. We're four minutes away from Carl Sr. and Marilyn's house. It's the part where everyone gets nervous. <laughs> do you feel my nervousness? I do. Do you feel mine? A little bit, but one of us has to keep it together. together. The entire four-minute drive is spent building each other up. You got this. We got this. Go in with a plan, but be prepared for that plan to blow up. And then we arrive at a two-story brick townhouse just off Main Street with an American flag in each window and beautiful potted plants on the front porch. It's nice, but it's not a mansion. It's not the home of a coal tycoon. I think for a second, do I even have the right address? But deep down, I know this must be the place. Alice and I park and start to walk over to the front door. She's a step ahead. If she's still nervous, I'm not seeing it. She walks up on the porch, and with no hesitation, she rings the doorbell. What number? They got a, they got a ring camera. Did you, did you ring the doorbell? Yeah. Okay. I notice the ring camera pointing at us, and I wonder what these people must be thinking about the strangers on their porch. I hear, I hear footsteps, I think. Huh? I think I hear footsteps. Oh, okay. Someone's coming to the door, and for the first time, I'm really starting to wonder what Alice and I have gotten ourselves into. Hey, how are you? This is where the tape stops. Pennsylvania is a two-party consent state, which means every person being recorded needs to agree. And I don't receive that consent. If you've ever listened to the first season of Serial, this is what happened when Sarah Koenig knocked on Jay's door. And from your perspective, listener, I understand. If you've made it this far in the show, you want to hear a recording. However... A small silver lining. We might not get a recording, but we do get an interview. Carl Sr. answers the door. And after a minute or so of explaining who we are, he invites us inside. Now, Carl Sr. doesn't consent to having his voice recorded, but we are clear about our intentions. That I'm a journalist working on a podcast about his son, who owes a lot of people a lot of money and we want whatever info he's willing to share. And he's willing to share 
a lot. In fact, one of the first things he says is, he has stories we can make a movie out of. Carl Bujo Sr. stands about five foot seven, but he fills up the doorway. He's in a t-shirt and jean shorts. Besides the beard and gray hair, he looks a lot like Carl Jr. If I had any doubts we were at the right house, this puts them to rest. He tells us his wife isn't home, but that we can take a seat in his living room. He's nice but firm. He points at us with his index finger as he speaks, as if to make sure he's driving his point home. Immediately, he asks if we're looking for money, because Carl Sr. says that this used to happen all the time. People get conned by the kid, and because Carl Jr. told them that mom and dad were rich, these people would call or just show up like we did, and then they'd leave upset when they found out Jr. made the whole backstory up. But when Carl Sr. learns that we aren't looking for money, he opens up about his kid's childhood. He says Carl Jr. is an only child, but he had friends. He went to Catholic school his whole life and was a C, C plus student. He didn't like sports, didn't really care for fishing or hunting. Says he didn't do drugs and that he didn't get in much trouble to speak of. Definitely no theft or scamming. Carl Sr. says that he and his wife loved his son. They even had an affectionate nickname for him. Bubs. That's B-U-B-S. I won't add that to the alias count. As for Carl Sr., he has an extensive resume. He spent some time in the Navy and then some more time in the coal mines. He worked in bars, did HVAC repair. He also built houses. He says he rebuilt the brick house we're sitting in, the one both junior and senior grew up in. He seems to admire hard work and says that he tried to instill that in his son. He'd often take Carl Jr. to work odd jobs. And while he says the kid didn't like to get dirty, he did it anyway. Carl Sr. says he realized when his son was a teenager that he was attracted to men. And while he admits he didn't like it, he says that's not why he and his son had a falling out. That happened when Jr. went to the Culinary Institute of America in New York, which mom and dad paid for, and which Jr. nearly graduated from before dropping out with a few months left. And a little before Carl Jr. quit, Carl Sr. got his first phone call about one of his son's schemes. It came from a school administrator who had given Junior tens of thousands of dollars. Now he wanted to be paid back by Carl's rich dad. Another call came from a young couple in Hilton Head, South Carolina. They told Carl Sr. that his son had taken advantage of them. Carl Sr. had to tell them the unfortunate truth, that everything Carl Jr. said to them was not true. They hung up crying. Carl Jr. was 19 years old at the time. Now, I want to be clear, these are just stories. And Carl Sr. didn't remember the names 20 years later. But talking to Carl Sr. wasn't the first time I had heard anything like this. Remember those investigator notes I referenced earlier from the 2005 case? They mentioned an administrator at the Culinary Institute who paid some of Junior's expenses. They also talk about several people in Hilton Head, South Carolina, that Carl Jr. had business dealings with, including one that he, quote, took advantage of. And according to these documents, all of these people eventually called Carl's parents and learned the truth. I've spent the past few months trying to get in touch with these people, trying to confirm these stories, but none have responded to emails or phone calls so far. Carl Sr. had a lot of these stories, but if he wanted me to know only one thing, it's that his son is no longer allowed in this house. In fact, the two men have not had contact in years. The thing he kept coming back to is that he didn't raise his son to be like this. Carl Sr. says that his wife has some contact with Junior, but it's infrequent. 
As for where Junior is now, he's heard some rumors, but nothing concrete. He also doesn't know what name he's using. He's oblivious to much of what his son's been up to recently. He definitely hasn't heard of Nuzerati, for example. As Alice and I get ready to leave, Carl Sr. tells me that it's been about eight or nine years since anyone came knocking on his door, asking about his son. The math checks out. That would be right before Junior moved to LA and started going by Michael Esposito. On our way out the door, I take one more look around the living room. A few things jump out at me. Mom's rosaries, vacation souvenirs, and a handful of family photos. None of them that I could see included Carl Jr. And above the TV sits a decorative sign, like you'd buy at Home Goods. It reads, when you get there, remember where you came from. Our boy. Wow. Alice and I are back in the car. And if I've learned anything from Serial, it's that you start recording the second you can, because that's when your memory is the freshest. I feel like he had a lot of stuff to get off his chest. He was trying to, I don't know, prove himself to be a worthy human being. Like, we did not raise him like this. Well... I don't know. I, there was a lot of things that he said that surprised me. Like the fact that he was running this scam since basically high school. 19. 19 years old. Alice and I talk about the people Carl has conned and how they aren't all the same. How a school administrator giving money to a student feels different from his victims later in life. The people whose weddings he ruined or the people he hired and never paid. In a lot of ways, Alice and I can't relate. We weren't really out that much because of this guy. I decide I need a gut check. So I call Josh and Janae. All right, you guys there? I'm here, what's up? Um, You're on speakerphone with Alice. Hi guys. And also- Alice, who's Alice? Alice Alice was a Nuzerati person who lives about 20 miles away, or 30 miles away. After introductions, we filled them in on what just happened. We just spent about two and a half hours with Carl Sr. Oh my God, they actually talk to you? Did it provide any kind of insight? So he's very, very alpha. Like he's an alpha male. He lives out in the cut of rural Western Pennsylvania. We tell Josh and Janae about everything that we learned. The call from the school administrator, the couple from South Carolina, what Carl was like as a kid. Mostly all new information that goes beyond what's been printed in newspapers or that Josh, Janae, and I have figured out from our own research. And Josh says he isn't surprised that Carl Sr. talked. This wasn't a first experience, so, like, he knows all of this. So, like, yeah. it would have been it would have been very different, I think, if this was, like, the first time he had heard of any of this. <laughs> he knows what his kid is. <laughs> oh, yeah, he knows. It's, just, it's, it's very much so, like, the Inventing Anna thing where they were, like, the parents were just, like, fully aware and were just like, hey, we don't condone it. Like, we just, it's our kid and... You know, whatever. (laughs) But mostly everyone wants to focus on the question I had about Carl Jr. when I arrived in Masontown. I was like, how did he get that way? Come on. Just bad apple. That's kind of their story. I actually asked him that. I asked him, like, why do you think, like, how did this happen? the way you did. Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly. But the truth is, none of us know. Not me or Alice or Josh or Janae or even Carl Sr. And as we wind our way up the turnpike away from Masontown and toward Pittsburgh, I'm beginning to wonder if I'll ever know. 
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. After three days in Western Pennsylvania and after spending two hours with his dad, I know a lot more about Carl's life. But I still don't get how he became what he did. And in a way, that's all I want to understand the man I've been tracking for all these years. But there's one step I didn't want to take to understand him. Interviewing a psychologist. Maybe you've heard this before on a true crime podcast. Some mental health expert comes on and says the subject is a narcissist or a sociopath because of X, Y, Z, even though they've never met the person. For obvious reasons, we didn't want to do that. But we still wanted to find someone who could speak to the mindset of a con man, in a general sense. So I went big. I tried Frank Abagnale Jr., the catch-me-if-you-can guy. But Frank politely declined. So I started going down a list of quasi-celebrity scammers, which is indeed a real thing. And I found one. A guy who's used aliases to defraud people and has written books about it and has even appeared on podcasts. He was perfect. Except, you know what they say about leopards. After this guy agreed to an interview, he began hard-pitching me on selling his life story to my bosses for a Spotify-produced docu-podcast. He even texted me at one point, quote, I feel like this is our ticket to the big time, exclamation point, end quote. If I did this, he'd give me whatever tape I wanted for this show, the one you're listening to right now. I could even write his answers for him. Which, if you know anything about journalism, that's not how this works. So I passed. One con man in my life is more than enough. Thank you very much. But still, I needed to talk to someone who could give me some insight into these kinds of scammers. So I reached out to the next most logical kind of expert on con men, a podcaster. I don't stop being fascinated by them. I'm not bored by them, I, I have to say. That's Josh Dean. Yes, a third Josh has hit the podcast. Josh Dean is a respected journalist. And most importantly for this endeavor, He's the voice of some of my favorite podcasts ever. If you recognize Josh's voice, it's probably from the first season of Chameleon, the one about the Hollywood con queen. And this is always the key to these things, is that it hits you in the spot where you're most vulnerable. You know, I guess for most of us, it's like reputation and money. I don't know. I feel like we could do a thousand seasons of Chameleon, and there will be a thousand permutations of this. In the first season of Chameleon, Josh got a tip and began tracking down a mysterious person who was allegedly pulling off a bizarre scheme. The target was Hollywood's working class, like makeup artists and personal trainers. And this person convinced them to come to Indonesia for a new movie. But it turned out the movie didn't exist, which these people didn't realize until they'd already handed over a few thousand bucks and flown halfway across the globe. It sounds like a ridiculous scam without an obvious windfall which gives Josh some good perspective into a case like Carl Buccio's. What was it called? This is the embarrassing part. Newserati. <laughs> I mean, in the, I've, I've lived through various digital eras. That's not terrible. It's not great, but it's not terrible. Could be worse. Ah, Josh. Agree to disagree, but I appreciate the moral support. 
So one of the mysteries of the series has been, what is Carl Buccio actually trying to do? What exactly is the con? That starts with Newsarati, which again, he never asked any of the 100 plus employees for money. Just lots of unpaid work. But why? What was the end game? Then with the Los Angeles catering companies where the wedding couple sued him for not showing up or not doing what he promised, you could see the scheme a little more. 5,000 bucks here, 8,000 bucks there, at least one for almost 20 grand. But it's still a lot of work. That's also true in San Francisco where I understand the con a little more. He started the catering company with Janae using Josh's seed money, and then they say he used the business like an ATM. But while some of that money seems to have gone into clothes and apartments and other personal expenses, a lot of it appears to have gone into a restaurant, which is a fairly grueling way to make money, even if you end up stiffing your employees and a few vendors. Why do all this instead of taking a job doing anything else? Josh Dean, of course, can't give me these answers. He's never met Carl Buccio, and he only knows what I've shared. But he does wonder the same things about the Hollywood con queen, who, by the way, turned out to be a man named Gobin and is currently awaiting trial in that case. The question people would ask me all the time was why. It doesn't make sense. It's like an impossible way to make a living when you think about how many things have to go right for you. Like, there's no way anybody sat down... Like, this is my business plan for the next three years. I'm going to lure thousands of people to Indonesia on the promise of a fake movie, take a couple thousand dollars at a pop. We're all accustomed to the idea of the talented, charismatic con man. It's almost a cliche. But cliches exist for a reason. And both Carl and Gobin have a lot of things that make them believable to their alleged marks. In the case of the con queen, he understood how to lure people. According to Josh's reporting, he did it by setting up IMDb pages for fake movies and convincingly impersonating Hollywood executives. You gotta know some things to do that. And while our guy Carl has a sandpaper personality, he also has his charms. He understands people. He knows how to convince them to work for him, go into business with him, write him one of the biggest checks of their lives. Also, he's a great chef. That part is not a lie. When he met Janae McCullough, he blew her away with his food. I was shocked when I learned this, but the man knows how to cook. In fact, one of the few things about Carl's illustrious past that I have been able to confirm, he really did work at Paris Commune, that fancy New York restaurant mentioned in those articles. Time and time again, I've been told by people who knew Carl that if he wanted to make an honest go at running a business, he could do it. Josh Dean saw some of that in The Con Queen. I hesitate to call them talented, but they are talented individuals that like, can just tell you what you want to hear, make you believe in them, and give them things, right? Like this couple like, lets them move into the house and loans them hundreds of thousands. You're like, how can that be possible? Like, there's, I would never do that, but like, maybe you would. Something else Carl and the con queen had in common? They routinely targeted people with aspirations. Janae spent years dreaming of running her own business when Carl Buccio stepped into her life and promised to make that a reality. With me at Newsarati, I wanted a job that fit my skills and ambitions. I thought I deserved what he was selling me, so I was willing to look past the red flags. So many of the other people I've interviewed for this podcast fit the bill, too. The con queen, he wasn't targeting already successful movie industry types. It was the blue-collar workers that make the business run. The people with the smallest type size in the credits the ones waiting for their big break. 
And you might ask yourself, to what end? Sure, the money adds up after a while, but it takes a lot of scheming and lying to get there. It's a lot of work in its own right. Why is this worth the effort? Why put people through this? Josh Dean has a theory. It can only be about control. That's where I landed pretty quickly. Control. It's something that Josh points to when talking about the con queen's backstory. How there are a lot of reasons why Gobin would feel like he needed to exert control over people. And I do think, in his case, he was humiliated as a youth. You know, he was gay in a conservative country, in a conservative family, and probably humiliated over and over again by his family and his classmates. And so, inside of him, there's some need to, like, force that feeling on other people. I hesitate to draw too much of a connection between the con queen and Carl Buccio. Everyone's experience is very specific. But as Josh says this, I think of who Carl Buccio was long before I ever met him. And after seeing where he grew up, speaking to his dad, learning what life was like in Masontown, I can't help but put myself in his shoes. When I start thinking like this, I have some sympathy for Carl Buccio. Not the version I met. Not the one who called himself Michael Esposito. But the young Carl Buccio, I feel for the guy. And I feel like maybe I even understand him a little bit better. With that in mind, I want to go back to the beginning of this episode, to a recording I played for you of a conversation between Carl and an employee about growing up in New York, which we know now was a lie, about trips to the Gucci store that never happened and private cars that never existed. Now that we know more about his backstory, I'm going to replay a little bit of that recording. It hits different now. And you know, do you know what I got off on? I like that wallet. Oh, great. Here you go, Mr. Esposito. And I put it in my pocket and walk out the door. And the thrill was, how did that just happen? This guy just walked up, picked that wallet up. They handed it and walked out of the door. Did nothing happen? You know? So you, you get like that, that, the like, power, yes, that power of it, right? Power. If that's what this is all about, I get it a little more. Knowing what I know now, this conversation doesn't play like an arrogant criminal trying to convince someone of something. It plays like a person who grew up wanting to have any other life than the one he did. If you tell a lie enough times, you might start believing it's true. Except here's the thing. Millions of people around the world have backstories like Carl and the Con Queen, but most of them don't grow up to become scammers. I didn't reach out to Josh Dean just because I thought he understood con men. I also wanted to pick his brain because he's a veteran of this kind of work, and I wanted to see if my story had legs. There are a lot of true crime pods out there. I'm trying to make sure mine is a good one. Thankfully, Josh Dean thought there was something to this. Having it happen to you actually makes it, the sort of why should you do it is answered in that sense, right? It's not just like, hey, I heard about this other crazy scam that's similar to what, I just think you were in the middle of it. So I would feel if I had like been part of the Con Queens, like even more motivation to to do it. I, I, I started to take it personally just because I, you know, you heard from a handful of victims, but I talked to like dozens of them. And like at some point, it starts to become personal just because you're like, screw this guy. 
Like I can actually do something and these people can't. So if I can only imagine for you, you're like, I also took it really personally because it was personal for me. Josh is right. This is personal for me, but not in a vindictive way. Rather, I just want to know what really happened. Not only to me, but to all the people I've talked to. In early 2021, I got a soft green light for this project. The pandemic gave me a lot of time to dig into the story. And when things started reopening, I started finding more people affected by this guy. I was able to go up to the Bay Area to interview Josh and Janae and the restaurant employees at Cook Shop. I spent thousands of dollars requesting legal documents. I learned the names of his old parole officers, and I spoke to cops who didn't want to go on the record, but who told me I was heading in the right direction. This didn't become my full-time job, but it became an obsession. I wanted to get the name Carl Buccio out there, along with his picture and his other aliases. And I wanted to tell the stories of the people affected by him, make them feel heard. But this all only got me so far. I probably did two dozen interviews back then, but then I hit a wall. People were reluctant to speak to me. Wedding couples felt embarrassed or still held out hope for legal proceedings. I'm sure some of them thought I was podcast Don Quixote, tilting microphones at windmills, emails into the abyss, disconnected phone numbers, a lot of rabbit holes. My bosses saw it too. And so after I had spent about nine months actively reporting this project, I had to put it on ice. I was running into dead ends and they needed me to do other work. Also, I had a few ideas where Carl Buccio could be, but nothing concrete. No idea what business he was running or what alias he was using. Frankly, I wasn't even sure he was still alive. I don't blame my bosses for telling me to backburn on this project, but it was deflating. I remember telling one of them that not being able to land this plane was my greatest professional regret. If I wanted to finish this story, I needed a miracle. And then, in late 2022, a little over a year after I put this on pause, my vast network of sources, of new friends, gave me that miracle. I got a text. It was from Ali Tong. You might remember her, the social media coordinator who worked for Carl Buccio at Cook Shop in San Francisco back in 2019. Ali told me she had spoken to a woman who was doing some digging of her own. And this woman was supposedly getting scammed by someone who was using yet another alias, but that she believed was indeed Carl Buccio. And she said, like, she would like to talk to me because she thinks she knows the same guy. So I was immediately interested. I was like, I have this guy. You need to, you need to talk to him. I got a guy and you need to talk to him. And that guy was me. And that was my miracle. Because now, I not only know what name Carl's using, but exactly where I can find him. Next time on The Wedding Scammer, we're heading to Texas. And we're finally going to start connecting some dots. So tomorrow comes and I'm like, hey, where's my money? And he is like, oh, you know, I was too busy and I couldn't get to it. Uh, I went to my husband's bar and had a glass of wine and looked up online, couldn't find a thing about him. And the next day I came to work, I said, you know, I just, I was like, I keep realizing that like everything that he said to me has been a lie so far. 
that it just finally clicked. And I was like, oh, Zencraft, LA. And I was just like, yep, that sounds exactly like the guy I know. The Wedding Scammer was reported and written by me, Justin Sales. The executive producers are Juliet Littman, Mallory Rubin, and Sean Fennessy. Our story editor is Amanda Dobbins. The show was produced by Jade Whaley, Mike Wargon, Bobby Wagner, Vikram Patel, and me. Fact-checking by Dan Comer. Copy editing by Craig Gaines. The music in this series was composed by Justin Cotoni of 13th Ward Social Club. Sound design by Bobby Wagner. Mixing and mastering by Scott Somerville. Art direction and illustration by David Shoemaker. Thanks for listening. <laughs>